Podglomerate original. There's always been this ultimate destination that sort of cemented a comedian's legacy into the big time. In vaudeville, it was the palace, playing the palace theater, and then doing a spot on the Ed Sullivan show or on the Tonight Show with Jack Parr or Johnny Carson, later HBO or getting on Letterman or Conan. But at the time of this recording right now, the prime destination for stand-up comedians is a streaming service called Netflix. No one cared about my opinion when I was a little kid. No one cared what I thought. This is John Mulaney from his special, The Comeback Kid. Sometimes people would say, uh, what do you think you're doing? But that just meant stop. They didn't actually want to know my thought process. They didn't want me to be like, well, I was gonna put this bottle rocket into this carton of eggs so that when I lit off the bottle rocket, the eggs would explode everywhere. Oh, well, that's very interesting. And what brought you to this experiment? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Well, you know how I'm filled with rage? I'm so horny and angry all the time, and I have no outlet for it, so... Eggs. Well, what brought us here? Obviously, there's a lot of technological innovations that happen, but basically, between... April 2005 and December 2006, there was an explosion of technological innovations that allowed comedians to reach audiences in ways never before imagined, creating our current comedy boom. Let me just list a few. YouTube begins at that time. Podcasting on iTunes. Twitter begins. Facebook became open to everyone over 13. And then in December 2006, we hear from this comedian. Hi gang, uh, just woke up, so I thought I'd serenade you, serenade you rather, with a song. Uh, this is then high school uh, junior Bo Burnham, who recorded the video My Whole Family from his bedroom and uploaded it to YouTube. It's about my life and something I need to come to realize, and all of you should come to realize. Take it as it is. Okay, see you again. Every time I go to dinner, seems like I'm getting a little bit thinner. I'll sit down at the breakfast table, I can talk, but they're not able. When I look at them, I find there's a single question on their mind. Baby, I wish you could go back to the way it was. It's not easy now because... Within a month, his comedy tune was generating a million hits a day. As a young comedian, he got famous without ever performing in a club or theater echoing Bob Newhart's 1960 ascent. In a way, it's even more mind-boggling than what happened to Bob Newhart, who had never performed in a nightclub, but Newhart had a Warner Brothers record deal and was performing in a nightclub and had a mobile recording unit taking care of everything. This was just one kid with a camera. A year later, he gets invited to the Montreal Comedy Festival. Right. Uh, He meets Judd Apatow. (laughs) He also is the youngest stand-up to ever record his own Comedy Central special. Comedy Central presents Bo Burnham. Thank you. Um, Don't worry, I'm hilarious. Um, I have some news. Uh, Last Thursday was my 18th birthday. Um, 
I don't have a joke, I just like the applause. With the help of the internet, Bo Burnham became bigger and more famous than hundreds of comedians who had been working in comedy clubs for years. My whole family thinks someday, I guess it's always been that way. Maybe it's cause of the way that I walk, makes them think I like boys. Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. Yeah, there's not much more I can teach you. This is, we're going to go right up to the present. This is the last class. I mean, we're going to do that live thing in a couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, coming up, we are going to have a live podcast and sort of looking back at some of our favorite moments. And a special guest. But anyway, let's get right to this because we are in a comedy boom right now. And it's all because of one thing. The internet. Before there was YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or Bo Burnham, there was a club comedian who started to tap into this immense power. Why do this day do people insist on yelling at the drive-thru? It's modern technology. I'd have my little headset. Hi, welcome to Burger King. May I please take your order? Warburg! Sir, welcome to London! Excuse me, I'm fucking bleeding from the ears here, okay? Let's turn the main down a tad, okay, Skid Row? And so that was Dane Cook, obviously. Yeah, and Dane spent like $30,000 to have this professional company make this very robust website, and he also used MySpace. Yeah, I remember on MySpace there was a place for musicians to upload their songs, and Dane Cook was the first comedian I saw upload an audio recording of one of his jokes. And on MySpace, he keeps getting more and more fans and friends. He has like over a million. And suddenly he's selling out Madison Square Garden. Quick comedy history, the first stand-up to sell out the garden was Andrew Dice Clay back in 1990. Dane was also listed in Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people. And he had an HBO special and an HBO documentary series called Torgasm. But then even more, he hosts Saturday Night Live twice. He starred in movies. He was the first to use this technology that we now sort of see all the time. Yeah, this all seems like commonplace today, but Dane Cook was interacting with his fans back before Twitter and before podcasting. Uh. All right, here we go. Let's start. This is Jimmy Pardo, host of the Never Not Funny podcast. Comedy Death Ray, yeah. which has since morphed into Comedy Bang Bang, started at the M Bar. And I hope I'm not speaking out of school, and I yeah. hope I'm getting this correct. Okay, okay. I think they wanted, I think Scott and BJ. Scott Ackerman and, and BJ Porter. Right. And some others did not feel welcome in, at Largo, which was the hip, cool alt scene that was right, happening here in right. LA. Um, I was part of that. I was part of Largo. And, right. and Scott and BJ said, hey, we're going to start up our own show, but we would like you to be part of our scene as well. And at this time, Matt Belknap, a comedy fan, started a website called a specialthing.com. A nerd comedy website. And Matt was. Were going, you aware of that website? I was because Matt would do reviews. Now I'm talking about before you even didn't met even, him. Didn't even know who this guy was. Okay. And he would do reviews of shows around town. I didn't know his name was Matt. I didn't know who this guy was. I just know that he was a secret identity. Yes. He went by Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Really? 
And he would he would uh, just sit there, and then the next day, here's a and then I and I would read it and go, this mother effer better like <laughs> me. He better, right? You know, and I would I would get scared, like I would get a knot in my stomach. These are rooms for us to be to try safely fail to try, right, Andrew? And it was at one of these M bar performances that comedian Doug Benson outed Matt Belknap as Sasquatch. And he goes, well, that's him right there, and I go, I go, that son of a bitch is here. And then afterwards, Matt came up and introduced himself. And I was like, you're ruining comedy. You're, you can't be reviewing guys experimenting. What are you? And he's like, I'm doing it from a passionate place. I'm doing it because there's this scene is so cool right. that people in Iowa who would relate to this, they don't get to see it. So I'm sharing it. And then Matt started a podcast. So I was doing an interview series for the website, uh, just talking to different comedians. And um, this is uh, Matt Belknap. Uh, and so I interviewed Jimmy and and at the time I felt like he was doing a live talk show. And I thought we could just turn that into a podcast, like just record that live show and put it out once a month. So Matt, how did you even become aware of podcasting in general? I really only became aware of it from um, Jesse Thorne posting on, uh, on my message board about his show, uh, which was then called the Sound of Young America. Now it's called Bullseye. Uh, he was, I think, still in college, uh, and it was a college radio show that he put, was putting out as a podcast. And I think that's the first time I ever heard the word podcast. So I was like dimly aware of it that way. And then iTunes, you know, introduced podcasting, the podcast directory in 2005. Before this, in order to listen to a podcast, you often needed multiple applications to download audio and listen to it on the go. But Apple made podcasts much more accessible. I checked out Ricky Gervais like everybody else did. You're listening to Ricky Gervais with me, Stephen Merchant and Carl Pilkington. And uh, you're thinking, well, why are we doing a podcast? Why are we doing a podcast for for, for no money? Is um, it no money? No. It's free, isn't it? It's free download. But this, this is the, this, yeah, this is what I'm here to answer. Mm. It's because I like to be in a room with Carl Pilkington. Mm. You know, like some people go and help sort of chimps. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. Well, they people. go to the, the you know, the, yeah, the, the jungles and, and things. And yeah. help out little sort of endangered Dian species. Dianfossi or whatever. Exactly, You're yeah. very much the Dianfossi of the, of, of, the, the, of the Manchester of, scene. Of the, of the uh, little bald mank world. <laughs> and Carl Pilkington is, is an ongoing experiment for me because I've seen him blossom from an idiot into an imbecile. <laughs> this is so exciting. This is the start of it all. This We had Ricky Gervais in London, in New York City. We have Keith and the Girl and a guy named Danny LaBelle. And Matt Belknap not only produces Never Not Funny with Jimmy Pardo, but he also produces Doug Benson's podcast, Doug Loves Movies, and then Chris Hardwick starts Nerdist podcast. And then there's Adam Carolla, who's this huge radio star. He jumps in, and that show that Jimmy Pardo was on, Comedy Bang Bang, becomes not only a podcast, goes on to start a podcast network called Earwolf and becomes a big corporate player in media. Now you have podcast networks and then in 2009 mark Marin starts wtf and mark who was both a club comedian and an alternative comedian he had this uncommon ability almost like a therapist to bring out the most revealing and intimate details of People's lives, mainly comedians. I mean, famously, he talked with Robin Williams and Louis C.K., and each of them shared deep, personal stuff that no one had ever heard. Very compelling, very compelling stuff. And it kind of sort of demonstrated to the world the remarkable depth of this new medium. Andrew, so much is happening at this time that's changing how a comedian lives his life. Not just so much, but how quickly so many things are happening oh all God. at once. Like Twitter is a great example. 
Now, I can't think of a comedian that isn't on Twitter. I can't think of a person that isn't on Twitter. (laughs) Well, okay, my mom's not on Twitter. But even like old time comedians like Carl Reiner is on Twitter now and Albert Brooks, like legends. But when it all started, well, how does it all work? It was like 140 characters, right? Yeah, it's very short, like microblogging. Right. And now with the advance in cell phone technology, comedians could send out jokes to sort of test market your joke before you did it on stage. And if they got a lot of retweets, you're like, hey, this might work on stage. And also would guard against people stealing stuff. Well, and there was uh, uh, Rob Delaney. Right. Famously got popular on Twitter. Exploded on Twitter. Now has his own show overseas. Yeah, he he would go on stage and read his tweets. You could microblog to your fans. They could respond to you. You could promote your shows. And just like in MySpace, you had all these friends now called followers. And this was a tool that comedy clubs and comedy bookers could use to determine how popular you are and if you could sell tickets or not. Yeah. And while everyone had these smartphones and were connecting on Twitter and other social networks, there were some unforeseen consequences. Because there's cameras on these phones. Yeah. And so you could film a comedian in a club and next thing you know, post it on YouTube and you might be working on that material, might not be developed. Might not be ready for people to hear yet. But sometimes you would capture something and it would elevate a comedian's career. This happened to Bill Burr when he was getting booed on stage and he ended up roasting the city of Philadelphia on stage in Philadelphia. Bunch of fucking losers. <laughs> fucking Rocky is your hero. The whole pride of your city is built around a fucking guy who doesn't even exist. You got fucking Joe Frazier is from there, but he's black so you can't fucking deal with him. So you make a fucking statue for some three foot fucking Italian, you stupid Philly cheese eating fucking jackasses. I hope that cheese melts your fucking faces off. All of you collectively suck. And in another way, this happened to a comedian, Hannibal Burris, who was being recorded, blurry recording in the back of the room. But it wasn't important that you could see Hannibal. It was what he was saying about a legendary comedian, Bill Cosby. And now Bill Cosby is in jail. And people don't believe people think I'm making it up. I'm like, Bill Cosby, there's a lot of rape allegations. No, you do. No. They call me Captain Kickemout. That shit is upsetting. If you didn't know about it, trust me. When you leave here, Google Bill Cosby Breaker. <laughs> this shit has more results than Hannibal Burks. <laughs> I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but now comedians Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock won't even allow cell phones in the arena. Yeah, you have to turn over your phone when you enter the venue and they, they lock it in a little bag that you can't get into. You can't even cut it open. Sign of the times. I think it's important in the history of stand-up to talk about an improv theater. It's called UCB. Upright Citizens Brigade, which was started by Amy Poehler and Matt Besser, Matt Matt Walsh, and Ian Roberts. Right. And I think they really changed the whole paradigm of what was possible because they were they did a lot of stand-up shows. Remember we talked about Comedy Death Ray, which became Comedy Bang Bang, which was this great Tuesday night stand-up show. And it wasn't about a two-drink minimum. It was a $5 cover charge, and a place was packed. But here's the big controversy. 
they don't pay any performers at UCB. Yeah, I, I produce a monthly show there, and you know we've never made any money doing not that. a dime, not from ticket sales. Well, I have to say, this very much echoes what happened at the birth of comedy clubs. At the Improv, they didn't pay. And the Comedy Store, they didn't pay. And this is still a controversy, right? Yeah, because the way UCB makes money is they have a, a training center and they teach improv. They and that, teach classes. That covers everything. So the, the shows aren't the, the big money makers. Right. But when I saw that, they came out to L.A. in 2005. And when I saw the shows there... It was just the energy was great because people were there just for the comedy. It was like a theater show, but in a much smaller room. No question. But this model didn't stop at UCB. It spread to a bunch of other new uh, theaters, sort of in the same taste style as Largo or Luna Lounge. We see new shows and new venues opening All up. the time. And it's as big as ever, from Brooklyn to the Creek and Cave in Queens and... The Bell House and the Union and these great shows in New York, like Whiplash at UCB, right? Yeah. And there was something called Night Train. I think that just ended. With and, Wyatt Snack. Right. And we had Hot Tub out here. And, and Setlist. And Nerd Melt. Which was in the back of a comic book store. It was a partnership between the Nerdist Podcast and Meltdown Comics. That was it. And they had great shows there. On Wednesday nights. Actually became a show on Comedy Central. Yeah. It, it just closed down the other day and they're still doing shows in the parking lot. <laughs> But this do-it-yourself, you-are-your-own-gatekeeper aesthetic is continuing to spread and helping widen this current comedy boom. Perhaps the most successful of these do-it-yourself alternative shows is Roast Battle. Which started in uh, 2013 at the Comedy Store when two open micers were going to fist fight. This is journalist Julie Seba, who literally wrote the book on the Roast Battle. The host of the open mic, Brian Moses, said, hey, your comics, don't fight. Use your words. And the, the roast battle was born. Mike worked at McDonald's for eight years, and I think we all know why he doesn't work there anymore. They took away all the incentives. I mean, they tore down all the playgrounds. <laughs> yeah. This is Sarah Tiana battling Mike Lawrence on the roast battle. People are asking me tonight if I'm going to put Sarah in her place. She's a 38-year-old woman in comedy. There isn't one. <laughs> you know, it's all over the world, and every local comedy scene kind of has a bastardized version of it. And there's TV versions in Mexico and South Africa and the UK. Like the Comedy Central UK version was the most watched series of all time, Comedy Central UK. And now with Roast Battle, I think it's a whole new fourth pillar of comedy. Can you tell me the other three pillars of comedy? Oh, the, the stand-up and sketch and improv. Okay, now we're going to get to a very tricky part because as a professor of stand-up, it would be negligent to talk about this era of history and not mention Louis C.K. It's difficult for me to want to talk about the accomplishments of someone who admitted to sexual misconduct. Multiple sexual misconducts. But he shaped this era in stand-up in many ways. Louis C.K., who had done specials for many Many different companies. He'd already done HBO. I believe he'd already done Showtime. Certainly done a Comedy Central. And had his fame 
greatly enhanced by a viral video that he did. I'm Conan O'Brien. It's called Everything's Great, Nobody's Happy. Flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. Right. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non-contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing. Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's right. Now, and this is just an example of the power of the viral video. The success of his TV show allowed him to self-finance and produce his own stand-up special. And he puts it online on his website. For five dollars. Five American dollars through PayPal. You can get digital version of this special. You've, in a way, you've revolutionized how things are viewed and mm -hmm. sold on the internet. Right. This is Louis C.K. on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Right. You started with your stand-up special. Yeah, it was a stand-up special that I shot and, uh, and put out on the site for $5 mm -hmm. and made it easy to steal and just ask people not to. And, uh, and we made a million bucks in like 10 days. So. Louis C.K. demonstrated that comedians could now provide the means of direct content distribution. This is the ultimate example of the do-it-yourself ethic that started way back at the Big and Tall bookstore in 1991. So obviously things are changing. It's a sign that we're in another comedy boom. I'm living through another one. There's there's so many signs. One is the corporations are back in. I just saw that Captain Morgan is sponsoring a comedy tour now. And the New York Times, for the first time in its 166-year history, has a writer just dedicated to comedy, providing regular, and I'm quoting here, reports from the golden age of comedy, unquote. Not only comedy clubs are thriving, like the Comedy Cellar, which in the 90s were begging people to come in, now had to open another Comedy Cellar right around the corner because too many people wanted to see live stand-up at a club. And like I said, these do-it-yourself shows all over the nation are, th are thriving. And there's comedy festivals. It's not just Montreal. There was just one in Montana. There's two in Idaho. It seems like every other weekend there's a comedy festival here in Los Angeles. Of course. That's part of it. And the comedy store is now packed. And the improv is doing well. And now there's this growing circuit, almost like a new vaudeville circuit, of these mid-sized theaters for comedians that don't want to play clubs but can't fill an arena. These are like 500 or 700 seat theaters all over the nation. I'm not done. Listen to this. Philadelphia, make some fucking noise! That's Kevin Hart at Philadelphia's Lincoln Financial Field. That's a sold-out football stadium. Carnegie Hall is now a regular stop on a comedy tour. The number of comedians who have sold out Madison Square Garden continues to grow. 
Dave Chappelle did a 16-night residency at a little comedy club called Radio City Music Hall. And it's not just the United States, Andrew. Now growing all over the world. England, Australia are now regular stops the way it used to be Pittsburgh or Chicago. Yeah, so we had a bunch of British comedians come over here, and now... Eddie Izzard is learning his act in different languages so he can expand his audience. This international stand-up expansion inspired a lot by the success of Russell Peters, who set these attendance records in England and Australia and Singapore, has now broadened the field to the end of the earth. And then we had Hannah Gadsby, who had this incredibly thought-provoking stand-up special on Netflix called Nanette. I do think I have to quit comedy, though. And it's probably not the forum to make such an announcement, is it? But the point I want to make is not about the content of her special. Hannah Gadsby is a Tasmanian comedian. Let that sink in. Tasmanian. And to top it all off, there is now a National Comedy Center just opened in Jamestown, New York. It has a hologram of a comedian. Not of a dead comedian, an actual touring comedian. Hi, I'm Jim Gaffigan. This is me as a hologram. I'm not normally this fat. This is just the technology. Welcome to Jamestown. It was nice of them to name the town after me. All right. The comedy gets better. Don't worry. So now we're going to circle back to where we started today with the prime destination of every stand-up working, a special on Netflix. Netflix began handing out original stand-up specials in 2013. But because of Netflix's enduring popularity, combined with the fact that it came into operation right when internet speeds were fast enough for streaming... The company's program seemed to move the needle more than any other platform. Suddenly, a successful Netflix special could graduate a comic from clubs to theaters or theaters to arenas. So, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I am seven and a half months pregnant. Yeah. This is Ali Wong from her special Baby Cobra. It's very rare and unusual to see a female comic perform pregnant because female comics don't get pregnant. (laughs) Just try to think of one, I dare you. There's none of them. Once they do get pregnant, they generally disappear. That's not the case with male comics. Once they have a baby, they'll get up on stage a week afterwards, and they'll be like, guys, I just had this fucking baby. That baby's a little piece of shit. It's so annoying and boring. And all these other shitty dads in the audience are like, that's hilarious. I identify. And their fame just swells because they become this relatable family funny man all of a sudden. Meanwhile, the mom is at home, chapping her nipples, feeding the fucking baby, and wearing a frozen diaper because her pussy needs to heal from the baby's head, shredding it up. She's busy. Netflix even lured Chris Rock away from HBO. Plus, they signed up Jerry Seinfeld and Dave Chappelle. And now Adam Sandler has a stand-up special. They showered each comedian with unprecedented multi-million dollar deals. And adding these comedy legends to their roster helps solidify Netflix's place in stand-up history. Netflix is, re- is releasing a new stand-up special uh, every week. 
And uh, it's exciting because now you can binge watch America getting tired of stand-up again. It's going to be nice. You binge watch it. Never mind that I said America. Doesn't hurt the joke. That was Andy Kindler at Just for Last Festival giving the state of the industry address. He makes a good point. I don't know if we're in the middle of this comedy boom, the beginning, the end. I do know there's a couple little warning signs. There's some companies that have closed recently. Yeah, Funny or Die just laid off a bunch of people. And Super Deluxe has closed the stores. And then there's CISO, where we met, doing a podcast for this. Who are you? I'm Andrew. Hi, I'm Wayne Fetter. Hi. The same year that CISO closed its doors... Dave Chappelle released four Netflix specials. Obviously, we've already mentioned a number of technological advances that have changed. Like podcasting, what we're doing right now. Exactly. And you know that I, at the University of Southern California, I'm a professor of comedy. Adjunct professor. Still a professor. But outside of what's going on at USC and what I teach over there, there is now... For the first time, three different colleges, universities, most notably Emerson, that offer a fully accredited bachelor's degree in comedic arts. You can now major in comedy. Hello, I'm Albert Brooks, and I'm speaking to you on behalf of the famous School for Comedians, located on 22 gorgeous acres near Arlington National Park. How many times have you gotten nice laughs at a party, had a friend turn to you and say, you know something? That was pretty funny. You should think about being a comedian. Well, your friend was right. Yes, the comedy fraternity of show business is a fast-paced, nutty, funny world. There are always openings for good comedy talent. That was Albert Brooks back in 1972, satirizing the idea of a comedy school. And now... Well, we mock the things we are to be. Do you know what that's from? No. That's from the 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks. You would know that if you took my class at USC. So we did it. Six episodes on the history of stand-up. Do you have any final thoughts? To wrap it up, I don't really... Nothing? All right, if you're going to force me, maybe this. Despite all the changes, all the technology, and the, we went from nightclubs that were very posh to these comedy clubs that were brick wall, literally like as low tech as you could be. No matter how it's changed, the basics of the job is still the same, which is usually one person on stage with a microphone communicating with a crowd of people and trying to get them to laugh. And that's hasn't changed. That's whether you're Bob Hope or you're Margaret Cho or you're Chris Rock or any of these, and or any level of it, it's still the base, and it's thrilling and it is terrifying and it is satisfying and it is soul crushing and it's all of those things. And luckily, for some reason, Americans love stand-up comedians. Ladies and gentlemen, this is part of my first vaudeville act. You see, I used to come out and want to do about 12 minutes to just murder the audience.
The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks this week to Matt Belknap and Jimmy Pardo of the podcast Never Not Funny and Julie Seba, whose book on the roast battle, Ringside at Roast Battle, is available on Amazon or wherever you get books. Also thanks to the Abraham Comedy Archives and to Jordan Brady and Jake Brady. Jordan's I Am Comic trilogy features a bunch of great interviews with stand-up comedians and Jake helped pull some interview footage from that for us. And thanks to Jamie Flam, who originally interviewed Matt Belknap for his podcast, Gatekeeper. Some of the music in the episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about this show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at Hist of Standup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review. We'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you on November 18th. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.